Okay. Um, very, very warm welcome. <coughs> uh, Happy New Year. Um, welcome to this talk in the 141st session of the Aristotelian Society. It's a very great pleasure today to welcome Lee Walters from Southampton. Um, Lee, uh, as I'm sure many people know, works in metaphysics and aesthetics and philosophy of logic and language. In particular, he's interested in the metaphysics of art, fictional characters and empty names, and also um, more recently um, done some very interesting work on conditionals. Um, his talk tonight is on the linguistic approach to ontology. Just before I hand over to Lee, I'll repeat these nearer the time, but a couple of sort of housekeeping -y things. Um, Lee will share the handout on screen so you can follow along as he presents the material, but it's also posted in the chat. If you want to click on that, then you can navigate it yourself if you want to um, go back to particular sections and also for the question period. Um, We'll have a five minute break when Lee has finished, but then we'll, um, we'll take questions, obviously, and I'll field those questions. It seems that Zoom, at least for some people, has changed its settings and that some people have been having trouble finding the raise hand facility. It used to be under participants, then it seems for some people to have moved to reactions. So what I propose as a uniform way of um, <coughs> questions is if you could put in the chat that you have a question, just a cue would do it. Um, and if you have a follow-up to a question that's been asked, you could put an F in the chat. And so we can maybe even organize a bit of to and fro following up on the, uh, on the questions as they come. So I think that's everything I had to say. So without further ado, very, very warm welcome to Lee. Thank you for coming, Lee. Uh, thanks, Bill, and thanks everyone for um, showing up. Um, just before I start the paper, I'd just like to say two things. So when I was a graduate student in London, I used to frequently attend meetings of the Aristotelian Society. And I always hoped that um, when I grew up, I might get an invitation to speak. So this is really a great honour for me. Obviously, I didn't envisage that it would be under these kind of circumstances. I thought I'd be able to avail myself of the tea and biscuits, um, as per usual, but um, we are where we are. Uh, secondly, um, the version of the paper that um, was made available on the website um, was was a bit rushed, and if if you looked at that, that would um, read a bit rushed in places. And um, the positive proposal in section six is a bit garbled and doesn't bear any resemblance to what I'm going to say um, when I get to that today. But um, that's all being fixed now, so it should be fine. And obviously the published version will have that version, but uh, I can make the, the, the more recent draft available if anybody wants it. Okay, so um, so what, what is it I'm trying to do in this paper? Well, um, <clears throat> I want to look at the ontological question, which I take to be what is there. So in recent work on meta-ontology, some people have characterized the ontological product, project in terms of what things are fundamental or what things are really there. Um, and that's all fine. Um, and I don't have any quibbles with that project. But that seems to me to just be talking about the relations between the kinds of things that are in our ontology. So and there's room for that project, but I want to um, look at the wider project of, of what is there. And um, I'm interested in particular and sympathetic to what I call the linguistic approach to ontology, which is we determine what there is by examining how natural languages work. So that's obviously just a rough kind of characterization and there'll be specific proposals. Um, so the aims in this paper are kind of twofold. First, to assess the case for a linguistic approach to ontology. And second, along the way, to make some positive semantic proposals concerning empty names. So in the first couple of sections of the paper, I will um, uh, outline and assess uh, a couple of approaches to um, a couple of linguistic approaches to ontology. And some of this material will be very familiar um, before I get on to um, describing what I take to be the truth in these approaches. 
And um, once we've got to that uh, part of the paper, then that leaves me as an advocate of um, saying that there can be true sentences containing empty names with a couple of challenges. And I will then kind of start to address the challenges. Obviously, I can't, can't do everything in this one paper, but I'll start to address the challenges before concluding that um, I think there is a kind of a linguistic approach to ontology, but it's quite complicated and it kind of involves a bit of a, a reflective equilibrium between different types of judgments. Okay, so um, section two on the handout, uh, Fregainism. So Fregainism, as I'm characterising it, isn't a claim about um, philosophy of mathematics or propositional attitude descriptions or anything like that. It's characterised by these two claims that I've put on the handouts. Um, so the first claim, syntactic decisiveness, that says, and I'll just read this or paraphrase it, if an expression exhibits the characteristic um, syntactic features of a singular term, then it means that that term in question has the semantic function of a singular term, which is the function of referring to a single object. Okay, so semantics, uh, sorry, syntax determines semantics. So the claim is that all syntactically singular terms are semantically singular, that is, have the function of referring to a single object. And there's this second claim, referential minimalism, that says the mere fact that a referring expression features in a true sentence of a certain sort determines that the referring expression refers to a single object. Okay, so we've got this first claim about syntax determining semantics, and then we've got the second claim about semantics and truth determining ontological commitment. So for the time being, I'm going to ignore the um, part in, in brackets in referential minimalism, um, that it's often limited to sentences of a certain sort, and I'll just discuss it as a kind of an unrestricted thesis. Okay, so that's what I'm taking to be Fregainism, but there's a kind of corollary, which is about existential quantification. Um, so existential quantification into singular term position of a certain sort of true sentence is itself going to be existentially committing, ontologically committing, because it's going to be quantification over a domain of objects, i.e. the objects that singular terms refer to when they occur in such sentences. So the project, uh, the ontological project then, is just to determine, just to say, just to determine which sentences uh, containing syntactically singular terms are true, or which um, kind of generalizations into those sentences are true. Once we've done that, we've got um, our ontology, at least our first order ontology. And that's what I'll be talking about for, the, for most of the paper. Okay, so that's, that's probably quite familiar to lots of you. Okay, so section three. Um, so recently in his, in his um, 2016 book, Thomas Hofweber argues for a linguistic approach to ontology, but he takes the approach to be a bit more complicated than the Fregain picture that I've outlined. And although he doesn't talk in terms of Fregainism or um, the, the claims that constitute it, we can see Hofweber's approach is really a kind of limited Fregainism. So why is that? Well, and again, he doesn't talk in these terms, but Hofweber rejects syntactic decisiveness. He rejects the claim that all syntactically singular terms are semantically singular. Why is that? Well, he considers sentences like one on the handout. Jupiter has four moons, so the number of moons of Jupiter is four. So on the right-hand side, we have, intuitively, two syntactically singular terms. Uh, the number of moons of Jupiter and four. And we have what prima facie is an identity statement. And so some, many people have taken this to commit us to the existence of numbers because they kind of subscribe to something like the forgetting picture. Um, but Hofweber rejects this and he says, actually, what appear to be um, syntactically singular terms uh, referring to numbers aren't. They're doing something completely different. Okay, and we don't need to go into his arguments for, for my purposes. 
So he distinguishes between two sorts of syntactically singular terms. We have those that are semantically singular, that do have the function of referring to objects. And then we have what we might call merely syntactically singular terms, singular terms that are doing something else. Okay, so as well as distinguishing between um, two sorts of syntactically singular terms, Hofweber also distinguishes between two readings of uh, quantify phrases. So we have external quantification, which is the sort of quantification I mentioned earlier on, where quantifiers range over a domain of objects. This is the familiar sort of quantification that we're taught in logic. Um, but Hofweber also needs another reading of the quantifier, because if he's right about there being merely syntactically singular terms, and if he's right that number terms are amongst these, then generalizations about numbers, um, such as some numbers are larger than 10, can't be accounted for in terms of external quantification because the numbers are not in the domain. There are no um, objects that are numbers for Hofweber because number terms are not in the business of picking out objects. So to allow for generalizations about numbers, we have to give an internal reading of the quantifier where quantifiers just generalize into syntactic position. And so they have a kind of an inferential role reading or substitutional reading. You can just go from A is F to something is F, whether or not um, the, the, the term A in question is uh, even in the business of referring. So that's kind of the distinctions that Hofweber makes. And then Hofweber says that the central ontological question is to determine which of these two theses is true about the domain. Is a domain uh, an externalist to domain? That is, do we have an external reading of the quantifiers and are the syntactically singular terms semantically singular? Or, as Hofweber thinks for uh, talk about numbers, do we have internal quantifiers and merely syntactically singular terms? So, there's no reference here and there's no quantification over a domain of objects. Um, and so for halfway back, that's what we need to do. We need to examine the use of quantifiers in singular terms within a domain of discourse and decide whether externalism or internalism is true. If externalism is true, then basically we follow the Fregenian picture and we are committed to the relevant objects. And if internalism is true, we're not committed to the relevant objects. In fact, we're committed to there being no such objects because um, four and five, et cetera, aren't um, objects. And so none of the objects in the domain would be numbers. So that's Hofweber's picture. That may be um, uh, new to some of you. But the idea is that kind of, if we have an external uh, externalist domain, we can kind of go with a Fregean picture if we have an internalist domain, we can't because the Fugean thesis of syntactic decisiveness is an overgeneralization. Not all sing syntactically singular terms are in the business of referring. Okay, so I don't want to commit to Hofweber's claim about there being merely syntactically singular terms. The arguments are nuanced, but it does have something to be said for it. Um, but I'm not going to assess those arguments here. But I do think that syntactic decisiveness is a substantive empirical claim, and it's one that Hofweber disagrees with, but we don't need to um, uh, worry about that in the sequel, because that's not where my interest lies. Okay, so Hofweber has this dichotomy between internalism and externalism, <clears throat> and, and that informs his approach to ontology. But I think it's quite easy to see that this approach is incorrect, even by Hofweber's own lights, because it's not exhaustive. Um, <clears throat> why is that? Well, as Hofweber um, admits, we need an internal reading of the quantifier um, to allow for generalizations from sentences containing empty names. So consider two on the handout. Leverrier thought that Vulcan lay between Mercury and the Sun, so there is something Leverrier thought lay between Mercury and the Sun, namely Vulcan. 
Now, quite plausibly, this contains an empty name, the name Vulcan. Um, and so the quantifier N2 must be given an internal reading. But this shows that Hofweber's internalist, internalist distinction is not exhaustive because this discourse features semantically singular term Vulcan. Vulcan has the function of referring, it just fails to carry out that function. And this is something Hofweber would or could agree with. But nonetheless, we need to have an internal quantifier. So the domain is neither internal nor external. And moreover, given sentences like three, some planets have not been named, um, Hofweber would say we need an external reading of the quantifier when we're talking about planets in the round because three couldn't be given an internal reading because there would be no um, substitution instance to move from to go to three. So in ordinary discourse, I take it this is more or less ordinary discourse, in ordinary discourse, we have what for Hofweber are semantically singular terms, some of which refer, some of which don't. And we also have both readings of the quantifier. So ordinary discourse is neither internal nor external. So Hofweber's approach is incomplete because he says we just need to decide whether a discourse is external or internal, then we have our answer. But inter, um, ordinary discourse is neither, um, and so we can't apply Hofweber's methodology. So, and this is kind of obvious, but just to draw it out, in order to determine whether a domain like this domain of ordinary discourse is ontologically committing, it's not sufficient to establish that the function of singular terms is to refer. We also have to determine whether they carry out that function, whether they do in fact refer. Um, that is to say, going back to the Fregain thesis, it looks like unrestricted um, referential minimalism is false, as given by two. So if we think that Leverrier thought that Vulcan lay between Mercury and the Sun is a true sentence that contains an empty name, then referential minimalism is false, because that says we can just read off the fact that Vulcan appears in that sentence, that there is a corresponding object, i.e. the referent of Vulcan. Um, but Hofweber certainly allows for empty names, and I want to make room for that. And so we have to reject referential minimalism, and along with it, we have to reject Hofweber's um, kind of restricted Fregainism, the Fregainism that he limits to the external domain, because ordinary discourse isn't an externalist discourse. In fact, it's not clear that any discourses are externalist in Hofweber's sense. Okay, so. Um, just, just before I carry on, look, you know, everything in this area is controversial. So the claim that Leverrier thought that Vulcan lay between Mercury and the Sun is a true sentence of English is rejected by lots of philosophers because it take, contains an empty name and empty names can't be used in true sentences. Other philosophers say it is true, but the name Vulcan um, isn't empty. It refers to some kind of theoretical entity, some abstract object. Now, neither of those views are prima facie attractive. And I think somebody would only be driven to those views um, if they were in the grip of some philosophical theory. And that's not to say that we might not have some arguments for that philosophical theory, but I don't think that would be our starting point. And so I don't know of any good arguments for the claim that empty names can't figure in true sentences. So I'm going to follow um, appearances and say that they can. We'll, we'll discuss some challenges towards the end of the paper to that view, um, but I'm just going to take it as read for the time being. Now, like I said, it's philosophically controversial, but which claim isn't? So I'm just going to leave that there and we're going to come back to it in the end. Okay, so that... That kind of concludes our discussion of Hofweber, if you like. So we can, we can kind of um, forget about him for the time being. But as you'll see, the rest of the discussion is in a sense motivated by um, Hofweber, or at least couched in terms that have been motivated by Hofweber. Okay, section five. So 
I've just argued or suggested that referential minimalism as an unrestricted thesis is false, given claims like two. But traditionally, Fregeans have limited referential minimalism to um, a certain sort of sentence. That's why we had the bracketed remark in the formulation of it. Um, and the kind of approach that they tend to take is that they limit referential minimalism to subject predicate sentences. So to say, when we have a subject predicate sentence containing a syntactically um, singular term, then we can read off that we're committed to a referent because all syntactically singular terms are semantically singular. And then if it's a semantically singular term features in the subject predicate sentence, then we're committed to the relevant referent. And I'm leaving, a, I'm leaving to one side now that there are any syntactically singular terms that are uh, not semantically singular. So I'm, I'm just going to grant syntactic decisiveness, if you like. So on that kind of picture, um, we get this claim that I've, I've called the first order existence principle. So that is, if we have uh, a claim A is F, that's true, where A is F is a subject predicate sentence, then we can infer the existence of A, or we can say with the external quantifier, the backward Z, that there is something identical to A. So we can read off our ontological commitments from true subject predicate sentences. That's kind of what the Fugain, um might want to say if they were being a bit more circumspect about things. But why should we accept Fugainism so circumscribed? Why should we accept one EP? Well, I think we can motivate um, one EP by considering two questions that have kind of been adapted from Tim Williamson's recent discussion of uh, being in predication. Um, now, I should note, this is, Tim's not discussing um, 1EP as I formulated it, although he discusses rather, uh, rather similar claims. So that's why I'm saying these are kind of motivated by his discussion rather than, you know, attributing these thoughts directly to Tim, although I, th I think he'd be comfortable with them. So the first um, kind of question is, look, if we're going to allow for true sentences containing, um, true subject predicate sentences containing empty names, typically, and as we'll see, um, the defender of such a view wants to say that um, we can't substitute empty names for one another, salva veritate. So it's kind of to leave, leap ahead. Although it's true, Holmes is a fictional character. It's not true, Vulcan is a fictional character. But Vulcan and, uh, Vulcan and Holmes are both empty names, and we can't swap them over um, whilst maintaining the truth value. Um, how can we account for this? What kind of um, semantic uh, semantics can we give that allows for the differing semantic profiles of these names? And I'm going to return to that in the next section. In the present section, I want to focus on Williamson's second question, which is, how could a thing be propertied were there no such thing to be propertied? So the idea is, we say um, A is F. How could that be true if there is no A? Now, um, what we should note is that in the first instance, this question doesn't motivate uh, one EP directly. It motivates what I've um, actually called property ascription one EP. So it motivates the claim that if A is F is a property description, then the truth of A is F commits us to the existence of A. Okay? That's not what 1EP says. It just says um, A is F commits us to the, to the existence of, of A. Okay? So, so Williamson's thought that how could a thing be propertied were there no such thing to be propertied seems to um, support the claim about property descriptions. How could a property description be true if there is no object to be propertied? Um, so that supports property description 1EP. So there's a gap between um, prescription, uh, property description 1EP and 1EP, um, and that gap can be filled by a kind of related Fregean thesis about predicates. 
And that's what I've called uh, syntactic decisiveness style in the handout. If an expression exhibits the characteristic syntactic features of a predicate, then it has the semantic features of a predicate, i.e. its function is to ascribe a property. That is, all syntactic predicates are semantic predicates in this terminology. Okay, so if we accept syntactic decisiveness, we can move from property description 1EP to 1EP because um, all um, sentences of the form A is F will be property descriptions. So here we can see we've got an inconsistent triad given by four, five, and six. And I think this is a, a nice way to kind of characterize the debate. So uh, four, subject predicate sentences express property descriptions. This is what syntactic decisiveness star says, more or less. Five, there are true subject predicate sentences containing empty names. And six, the thoughts motivated from Williamson's question, the property description cannot be true if there is no object to be propertied. Uh, sorry, if there is no object to ascribe the property. Okay, so these three claims are inconsistent, so obviously one of them has to go. So some um, free logicians, people who want to allow for uh, true sentences containing empty names, such as Tim Crane, they reject six, and they say that property descriptions can be true even when there is no thing to be propertied. And all I can do here really is um, register that I share Williamson's puzzlement as to how this could be the case. It could be the case. What else could it be for a property description to be true other than for the relevant object to have the relevant property? If there is no such object to have the property, then a property description to that object couldn't be true. Now that's not to say that there can't be truths containing empty names, it just says there can't be true property descriptions. So I think six has to, has to go. As I kind of hinted, only somebody in um, the grip of a philosophical theory would deny five, given that we have sentences like seven and eight. Pegasus does not exist. Pegasus is a mythical winged horse. These seem to me to be true and to contain an empty name. So uh, if five and six are in good standing, then it's four that must go. Um, we should deny syntactic decisiveness and deny that um, all true, um, oh, sorry, and deny that um, all subject predicate um, sentences are property descriptions, and in particular, deny that subject predicate sentences containing empty names are property descriptions. So this is the truth, I think, in Fregainism and in negative free logic. So in, in, the, in the written version of the paper, I discussed um, kind of how negative free logicians approach this issue, and they tend to um, formulate things not in terms exactly of subject predicate sentences, or sometimes they do, but in terms of simple sentences, and then they kind of try and give a gloss on what a simple sentence is, and then they kind of, sometimes they give a circular reading of a simple sentence and say it's whatever um, commits us to the existence of an object. And I just say, look, you can just get rid of all of that and just appeal to property descriptions. And that's what's doing the work. So um, this is the kind of the, the truth, I think, in both Fregainism and negative free logic, which is a, a version of the Fregain uh, project. And so noting this, if this is right, this gives us a way of glossing the distinction that free logicians must have between existence entailing predicates and predicates that are not existence entailing. So existence entailing predicates are predicates that do ascribe properties. And so in the absence of the relevant object, um, they can't be true. And that's why they entail existence. If we have a true property description, we're committed to the existence of the relevant object. Predicates that are not existence entailing um, <clears throat> do not ascribe properties. And so that's, that's the kind of difference. And so we here we have a kind of a, a principled way of making this distinction that um, some free logicians have, have not made, 
made a convincing case either exists or what the distinction uh, rests on. But this leads to challenges. Um, so for anybody who wants to allow for there being true sentences containing empty names, and in particular, true subject predicate sentences containing empty names. So the first challenge is uh, Williamson's first question. How can we account for the semantic profile of empty names, given that they make different contributions to truth conditions? And second, the question that we've now arrived at um, after discussing property descriptions, what is the function of a subject predicate sentence if it's not a property description? And in particular, what are the predicates doing in such sentences if they're not describing properties to objects? It's all well and good to say that they're not property descriptions, but without the positive picture of what's going on, um, then the, the person who wants to deny that these are um, true sentences containing empty names uh, is going to be suspicious of, of any account. So that's what I'm going to turn to in uh, what might be the final section of the talk. Okay, section six, the varieties of predication. So on the view in question, predicates as a class don't have a single semantic function. They're doing different things. So some predicates describe properties and some don't. And as we saw, one of the challenges then is to specify what is it that predicates that are not describing properties are doing if they're not describing properties. But we should note that we shouldn't at the outset um, expect a uniform answer to this question. It might be that there are further distinctions to be made within predicates that are not ascribing properties. And so what I want to do uh, in the rest of this section is, is talk about what I think these predicates are up to and kind of give a, a positive proposal of, of one kind of predicate. And um, I'm not committed to saying that what follows is an ex exhaustive taxonomy, either for the existence entailing predicates or for the non-existence entailing predicates. But I am committed to these categories. Um, and there may be further categories or there may be um, further predicates that might not look as if they can be assimilated to these categories, but, but can be, and maybe that's something we can talk about in discussion. So, the existence entailing side of things is, is, is relatively um, straightforward. So here I just make a distinction between um, predicates that do ascribe properties and predicates that um, kind of purport to ascribe properties, the function of which is to ascribe a property, but they failed to carry out that function. So kind of ordinary predicates like is, is red or is large or is an electron, they're ascribing predicates, they're picking out a property and uh, when used in a subject predicate sentence they ascribe that property to the object in question and obviously that description might be true and it might be false. Then there are predicates like is a unicorn which um, have the same semantic function as um, ascribing predicates but they fail to carry out that function because there is no such property of being a unicorn. So for kind of Kripkean reasons um, there's no saying what it would be for an animal to be a unicorn. Uh, it's a natural, is a unicorn is a natural kind term, and, and in the absence of that natural kind, there is no such property. And so any claim of the form X is a unicorn is going to be false. So it's still an existence entailing predicate, because we just don't have any true subject predicate sentences containing um, uh, the predicate is a unicorn. Okay, so that's that's on the existence entailing side. What about on the non-existence entailing side? Let me um, sorry, just scroll down a bit. Um, well, here I think we've got at least three cases. So first, which is kind of familiar from the negative free logicians, some predicates, that is some grammatical predicates, predi um, phrases that combine with a noun phrase to form a sentence, like does not exist, they're not ascribing properties to objects, rather we should conceive of them as denying property descriptions. So it does not exist, um, what that does when combined with a name like Holmes, denies 
description of the property of existence to Holmes. So really, we should think of uh, the knot here as taking wide scope at, logical, at the level of logical form over the property description Holmes exists. And uh, we need a notion of logical form in semantics uh, to account for various readings of, of an, uh, a given sentence. Um, so this is all kind of um, completely kosher in terms of um, kind of project of um, compositional semantics. Um, I mean, you, you might deny this is what does not exist in fact does, but um, we do need a notion of logical form. And so the negative free logician and myself will say, the not here takes wide scope. So does not exist is not ascribing a property. It's um, denying a property description. Okay, so that's what the, the negative free logician wants to say, but unfortunately not all um, true sentences containing empty names can be accounted for in that way. So a second kind of case is given by um, 12. So um, cases like you know, X is thinking about Y, or maybe X worships Y, or X seeks Y. These phrases, these sentences that contain intentional transitive verbs, um, one way to think about these um, popularized amongst others by Forbes is to think of these as um, what we have here is we are characterizing a certain sort of representational event. So I'm not going to go into detail of Forbes' semantics. I don't have anything to add to what he says. But the idea is that X is thinking about Y, if and only if there is an event E, such that E is a thinking, and X is the agent of E, and this event, this thinking event, of which X is the agent, is characterized as being about Y. And um, an event can characterize as being about Y when there is no such Y. So um, about here is not a relation like reference. In fact, it's not a relation at all because it doesn't entail um, the second relata. Um, and it's kind of, you know, familiar from Goodman's discussion of there being uh, pictures of dogs and dog pictures. So. You know, we can have a picture of a dog, we might say in English, even if there is no dog, it's a picture of. So that picture for Forbes would be characterised as being about a dog, even though there is no dog that it's a picture of. Okay, so those, those two um, kind of accounts are familiar from the literature. But then we have cases like, is a fictional character or is a mythological horse? And it seems to me that there's no easy way of um, capturing those in terms of um, Forbes's semantics for events, for characterizing representational events. But nonetheless, we are characterizing representation in some sense. Uh, it's just that we're doing it in a different way. And as I'm going to um, suggest, what we're doing here is we, so we have kind of some kind of meta-representational property. We're characterizing a representation and speaking about that. Um, so, like I said, I don't think there's an easy way to subsume this into type 12 cases, a la Forbes. Um, but some people have thought maybe we could take um, inspiration from 11 to give an account of as a fictional character. So just as does not exist, says something about a property description, i.e. that it's not the case, um, is a fictional character, might be thought to say something about a property description, i.e. that it's fictional. So you might think that is a fictional character, so uh, Holmes is a fictional character, says uh, it's fictional that Holmes is a character, i.e. person. Um, and that's there's something right about that, but the truth conditions for um, Holmes is a fictional character, are more complex than that. And so we have to um, dismiss, dismiss that approach. Okay, so the truth conditions of N is a fictional character are as follows, and I'm not going to um, argue for this in detail, but we can kind of maybe talk about it in discussion. So if we say N is F or Holmes is a, sorry, N is a fictional F or Holmes is a fictional detective, then one part of that is to say that um, 
Holmes is a detective is fictionally true. That was the approach that we've just discussed and rejected. So that is one part of what it is for Holmes to be a fictional detective, is for the fiction to say that Holmes is a detective. But it's not that's all that required because real people can appear in fictions and uh, they're not fictional characters. So we also have a requirement that uh, N does not exist. And then that would nicely allow for the entailment from Holmes is a fictional character, so consequently doesn't exist, which seems to be a, a good entailment. Um, we also need to say that the name was introduced within a fiction. Um, and we also have to say um, that the name N does not co-identify with any term introduced outside of a fiction. So co-identify here is not the same as co-refer because we're allowing for empty names, um, but it's the relation, let's say, that if this is true, I'm not sure it's true, but um, that the name Santa Claus and Father Christmas stand in. So if we think they're about the same thing, even though there is no thing that they refer to, then they stand in the relation of, of co-identity. Uh, and we need this, it seems to me, because um, let's say I write a, a story about Le Verrier and uh, Vulcan, but I decide to change the names so I changed Leverrier's name, and instead of Vulcan, I use um, uh, Hephaestus, and instead of Vulcan, and it seems to me that Hephaestus is a fictional character, is false, even though, um, or is a fictional planet, is false, even though it would meet the other conditions. And the reason is um, that it co-identifies with the name Vulcan, and so we have to rule that out by uh, appeal to four. If you don't share that judgment, we can just drop four, um, but we'll still need the other, the other three conditions. Okay, so that's what the truth conditions of um, 14 uh, uh, or is a fictional character are. And so we can see here that if that's right, then what we're doing is we're characterizing representations. In fact, we're characterizing two representations because we're we're characterizing a fiction, if you like, by saying what's fictionally true within it or what's true according to it. But we're also characterizing a name. We're saying how it was introduced um, and how and the fact that it doesn't co-identify with another name. So this is what I meant when I said that um, is a fictional character is a method of characterizing representations. And um, now 14 kind of looks like it might be amenable to compositional semantics, uh, but you might be suspicious because we've got all this kind of metalinguistic stuff going on. So we've got use of N and, and mention of N. Um, but in the appendix, uh, which I might leave on screen when the, during, during the break, um, in the appendix, I show that a compositional semantics can be given. And the way to do this is we assign to each name two semantic values. So to any given name N, we'll assign a semantic uh, um, value, the singleton of N, which when N is a referring term, is the singleton of the, ref is the, of the referent, but when N is not a referring term, it will be the empty set. And then that can be plugged into kind of um, extensional context and even context involving modality to give the right truth conditions. And so instead of having predicates having functions from objects to truth values, you have functions from sets to truth values, and you just make the uh, tweet to the relevant function, saying that the referent of the semantic value, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then we have a second semantic value that we assign to a name, which is the singleton of that very name. And then um, that allows the semantic value of a name to feed into the truth conditions kind of given by one to four, because we have the name that we can operate on to say that that name was introduced in a fictionalizing context, etc. So I, I won't go into any more deals, but details, but for those who are interested, the that way of doing things allows us to give a compositional semantics. And um, I should just note in passing, I don't think this is a kind of 
ad hoc or implausible because we know that, uh, say, the semantic value of a quotation is is limited, is um, intimately linked to the uh, quoted material because quotation is a systematic device for where we can form quotations kind of upper hierarchy or move from quotations to the quoted material. And we also know there are examples where linguistic material can be used and mentioned at the same time. And so a nice explanation of that is that the semantic value of a, an expression involves both something like its regular semantic value, but also that expression itself. And so, you know, a given occurrence of a linguistic phrase has access to both of these um, semantic values. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's what I'm saying here. And then obviously you can just adapt this to give a similar account for a mythical horse or hypothetical planet. Okay, so in section seven of the paper, and that's on the handout, which I'm not going to talk through, that basically kind of mirrors what I've said for the second order um, debate. So it says that, you know, um, why should we believe Fregainism about commitment to properties? Um, we can kind of ask Williamson's question again, or modified version of it, how can a property description be true if there is no object to be propertied? And moreover, how can it be true if there is no such property for the object to have? Um, and so we'll have a, a version of kind of property description, uh, second order existence principle. Uh, and so we just basically the same, say the same kind of things as we've said here. So we'll get commitment to properties when we have true property descriptions, but we won't get commitment to properties when we don't have um, property descriptions, even if we have true subject predicate sentences, because not all predicates are in the business of ascribing properties. So even though we can generalize into such positions, um, that can't be accounted for in terms of quantification over properties. And so we can't read off any second order commitments there. And then the other thing I do in section seven is say, look, I've been talking about property descriptions all the way through, but let's say you're anomalist and you don't believe there are any properties, you know, um, isn't this whole kind of project uh, bunkum? And the answer is no, because everything I say about the first order debate can be rephrased. And instead of talking about property descriptions, we can just talk about um, uh, sentences whose function it is to describe how an object is. And so if we have sentences like that, we'll get ontological commitment, but we won't in other cases. And the cases I've given in this section aren't um, cases where we describe how an object is, or in the case of the relational sentences, aren't cases where we describe how two objects are. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, this, this treatment of the first order domain isn't committed to properties. And so we can uh, recapitulate everything in nominalistic terms. Okay, but I won't, I won't go through section seven. Okay, so where are we? So this is kind of wrap up. So when we have true property descriptions, we can read off our ontology, both at the first and second order um, level. But to decide when we have a true property description is no simple matter. I mean, for one thing, people sometimes deny that these sentences are true and invoke fictionist proposals, or they're motivated by certain philosophical claims to say that the, to deny that the question, um, the sentences in, in question are true. Um, or it could be that what I'm, what I've claimed are property descriptions are denied to be property descriptions by other philosophers. So some philosophers have wanted to say that um, it's literally true that Holmes is a detective. Now, on my view, it's false because that's a property description and there is no such Holmes. But it's open to those philosophers to say, no, it is true, and thereby it's not a property description. And then they give a semantics that shows that it's not a property description. And um, Heidi Titka, now Savage, does this in a, a AJP paper, for example. She doesn't talk about property descriptions, but that's effectively what she's, she's doing. Um, so when we do have true property descriptions, we can read off our commitments, but it's hard to know that when we, when we do have them. More generally, we start with some kind of intuitive verdicts about the truth of some sentences. 
And then we might have some reasons to think that those sentences contain empty names. Maybe because the sentences exhibit hyperintentionality, so you can't substitute um, what appear to be co-referring terms, or because we're committed to the negative existentials involving such names, or maybe in the case of fiction, because there's no intention to refer. That's why I think we think fictional names are empty or because, you know, there's no um, object to be referred to in, in the case of Vulcan. Or if we agree with Hofweber that the syntactic, the um, singular terms in question are merely syntactically singular. So we start with some judgments about um, some true sentences, and then we might have some reasons to think that the names in the, uh, those sentences are empty names, and so we can't read off ontological commitment from the truth of those sentences. But um, in order to allow for the truth of sentences containing empty names, we've got to do some semantics. We've got to provide a semantics for the empty names in question, and we've got to provide a semantics for the predicates in question if they're not ascribing properties. And until we tell that story, people who want to deny the literal truth of the claims in questions are going to be suspicious of their truth. And so it's only by people putting forward particular semantic proposals in individual cases, and then by assessing those proposals in those cases, that we can determine which sentences are true, which sentences are property descriptions, and which sentences um, contain reference to objects. So I think that there is a kind of a linguistic approach to ontology, but it's just a lot more complicated than the Fugayan or Hofweber concede. And it's only by, although Hofweber kind of thinks this is, is, is true in his own way, he thinks it's by examining the role that singular terms play, we can decide whether they're semantically singular or syntactically singular. And so then um, the upshot is there is, I think, a linguistic route to uh, ontology, uh, to ontological commitment, but it's not a quick route and it depends on particular semantic proposals being put forward and assessed. Thanks very much for your time.